We want to welcome you to the Bible teaching ministry of Fellowship Bible Church, where our desire is to honor God by faithful obedience to His Word. If you want to understand the Bible better, please continue to listen as Pastor Matt Postiff explains and applies the biblical text one verse at a time. You can reach us with questions or for more teaching audio and print material at our website, fbcaa.org. You can also watch our services live at fbcaa.org slash live. We want to thank you for listening and pray that you will be edified. Join us now as Pastor Postiff opens God's Word. Well, good morning, everybody. I want to welcome you this morning. Glad that you're here. This morning on my mind was to share with you some uh, uh, objections to our faith by the Islamic faith and to show you how we should respond to those. We have had some experience ministering to uh, some folks who believe the Islamic faith, and I've been reading a book on that, and uh, so is our brother here who is assisting us in this endeavor. And we're very grateful for that, being able to partner together and work uh, on that. And um, so I was inspired to write or respond to some material covered in one particular chapter of a book by a fellow named Nabil Qureshi. The title of the book is Seeking Allah, Finding Jesus. And uh, he, is, he was a young uh, man, maybe uh, about my age, and a few years ago he passed away from stomach cancer, unfortunately. Uh, we count that as, from our perspective, a real loss because he could have been, a, 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 you know, for many, many more years, a very uh, powerful proponent of the Word of God to our Islamic or Muslim friends, but God decided to take him before that. As this is the, what I said here in chapter 14 is the main source material for these notes, there may be variant Islamic beliefs that I'm not covering here. My purpose is not to cover every variation of belief. There are variations in the Islamic faith and how they explain things. Um, and I'm also drawing on our personal experience ministering to, uh, to Muslims. Let me share with you, first of all, some similar beliefs held by Muslims and Christians. Now, why do I do this? By the way, I should just make a comment about this, especially, well, for all of us and for you young people. You know, why is pastor talking about this sort of stuff in our church? My responsibility, as I see it, among others from Ephesians chapter 4, is to see to it that you are equipped to be able to minister the gospel to those that you encounter. Increasingly, you may encounter in your life or uh, acquaintances or workplaces folks who believe in the Islamic faith. You have others as well. Some of the same objections are made by Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses and, and atheists, for that matter. So my job is to prepare you because I don't talk to the people you talk to. You do. And so as a minister of the gospel in Ephesians chapter 4, Paul has given certain people with you know, the abilities to teach in order to prepare and equip the people of God for work of ministry. So that's why we're doing this this morning. So you would be prepared. And uh, you know, when, you, when you hear objections like this, you would not be like a deer in the headlights theologically, but you'd have your wits about you and you'd be able to bring some response uh, to this. So let's review. If it's review, let's learn new. If it's new, this material is on our church website. For those of you that are online, thank you for participating today with us. And um, so we start with, uh, in the first page of the notes here, uh, the similar beliefs held by Muslims and Christians. So because I'm going to be dealing with objections, 
I want to be fair and say there are some similar beliefs that we hold. First of all, Jesus, they believe, was a prophet. So do we. He was more than a prophet. He's prophet and priest and king and many other things as well, but he is a prophet. They believe Jesus was sinless. We do too, obviously. He could do no sin, nor was deceit or guile found in his mouth. Thirdly, Jesus was born of the Virgin Mary, they believe, and so do we. And Jesus worked miracles, they believe, like healing and raising people from the dead. So do we believe those things. Now, I say these beliefs are similar beliefs in that what we just said, we could both ascribe to those statements of truth, but because of the entire body of Christian theology and preaching that we have learned over the years, teaching and preaching from the Word, we have we have kind of a colored-in version of those statements that looks like a different picture than what an Islamic person sees when they look at those same truths. Does that make sense? You can have the same outline, but you have totally different coloration, or maybe you could say black and white on the one side and full color on the, on the other side. So these doctrines seem more or more significant to us than they do to the followers of Muhammad because he, Muhammad, is their main focal point. Who is our main focal point? Well, the Lord Jesus Christ, right? So we see these in a different light, but we still have to acknowledge that there are similar beliefs. And that is a common ground that can be useful uh, at times in the ministry. Let me uh, mention one subtlety, uh, and there are many subtleties that we've encountered in uh, Islamic theology. And one of them is that in Islamic uh, theology, they say, like Christianity, in Islam, works have no part in whether someone is saved. That's what they say. But this is not, in fact, an actual similarity between the two belief systems. Let me explain. In Islamic theology, works reportedly by them play no part in whether one is saved because Allah, which is the Arabic word for God, by the way, will permit a person into heaven without regard for their works, but utterly based on his own decision and mercy. You with me so far? Okay, so it, there's no connection to works whatsoever, they say. Yet, some people, this was said to us, uh, will go into a fire for a while, and then after paying for their sins, will go to heaven. This is an inherent contradiction to the doctrine of salvation apart from works because paying for your own sins by fire is a work, isn't it? So, you know, you get to that first statement that in Islamic theology, salvation is not determined by works. You're like, oh, that sounds good, but it's not actually as good as you think it is because of uh, the con connections to other teaching in that, in that faith system. So uh, at least some people are required to have that kind of uh, experience, which is a purgatory, uh, basically, that you know, we know from Catholic theology. In Christianity, works are the opposite of divine grace, and grace is the basis of our salvation. Indeed, God exercises grace upon his people apart from their works, 
There is no doctrine of purgatory where sins are purged or burned off before salvation can be achieved. That is in the Catholic theology. And, and like Islam, it's a system that relies upon works ultimately uh, for salvation. Now, I, my notes here are a little bit clipped, uh, only in the sense of kind of quickly going over this and summarizing it. But we, we don't look... When we look at the Bible, we don't see salvation and works in the same way that I just presented them from the Islamic perspective because God cannot simply by his mercy and and fiat decision say, you're going into heaven and you're not without regard for the payment of the penalty of the sins of both of these parties. There has to be a work done, not by us, but by Jesus Christ, in order for God to be satisfied with uh, the, the, the problem of sin, that his wrath has been satisfied, that justice, true divine justice, has been satisfied. So, in fact, it's impossible for God to simply, on the basis of some sheer mercy, to just say, I'm going to forget about those sins. The God of the Bible doesn't do that. The God of the Bible extracts a punishment for sin because the principle is the wages of sin is death. So you can't simply just wipe it off or erase it without a work of that nature. Of course, we say salvation is not by works because we cannot do works that are equal or equivalent to that kind of work that Christ has done. So... It's a very different kind of way of looking at things, even though there's a subtlety there that could trip somebody up if they just stop at that first level of, well, works aren't involved in the decision if somebody is saved or not. Let me move on, though, to contradictions to the Bible that we find in Islamic theology. And some of these are going to relate to the Bible, and some of them are going to relate to the person and work of Christ. I've just kind of put them into my notes in the order that I thought of them as I was thinking through this. In Islam, the Bible is a book created by men. Now, I should say uh, Muslims do have a place of regard for Jesus as a prophet. He's just To them, he's just one of the prophets like Ezekiel or Daniel or Isaiah or somebody, uh, those guys. Um, and they have a place of regard for the book, they call it, which is this, the Bible, and for the people of the book, Jews and Gentile, Jews and Christians. Um, but they believe that the Bible is a book created by man. It is like what their, um, their belief system, in their, in their belief they have the Quran, which is the, that's their Bible, and then they have what are called the Hadith, the Hadith are various sayings and explanations of uh, the prophet's uh, work, life, um, practices, principles, that sort of thing. Would you say that's a good way of saying it? And those Hadith are of varying reliability depending on the level of authentication of their source. So there are Hadith, H-A-D-I-T-H, Hadith, which are more reliable and those which are less reliable depending on the certainty of their source. Some are nearly certain or entirely certain, and others are suspect or even rejected by some or all Muslims. So they have this idea that the Bible is like those things. They can judge the reliability of it based on their judgment system. 
and some of it's okay, some of it's not okay, we'll come to find out that one of the biggest claims that they make is that the Bible is corrupted. And it's been changed so many times over the years that we cannot rely upon it. And that's because basically they look at it as a book of man, a book by man. But in Christianity, the Bible is the only book from God, and it was written ultimately by God. People say, you know, the Bible is just a religious book that some men wrote, but Christian doctrine is that God used men by his Spirit, superintending them so that what they wrote was exactly what he wanted to be written. No, no more, no less. No errors, no omissions, no additions. Everything true and the way that God wanted it to be. So the issue here is about the origin of God's Word on this particular point. Later on in a few minutes, I'll talk about the transmission of that Word to us today. But as far as the origin of it, the origin of it is spoken of throughout Scripture uh, in different places. You know, the classic verses are 2 Timothy 3:16 and 17. All Scripture is God-breathed. I rather like to use that rather than given by inspiration of God. It's not as literal. It's God-breathed. God breathed it out and it's profitable for doctrine, reproof, correction, and instruction in righteousness. But also 2 Peter, and Peter talks about the method of transmission of the word in which men of God were moved by the Holy Spirit to record what God wanted to have written uh, so that no prophecy is of private origin or interpretation, but it's uh, men were moved by God to give it uh, from him. And then we have a a, a various number of texts, for example, 2 Samuel 23, David is speaking. He says, the Holy Spirit spoke by me. Uh, Acts chapter 1 talks about David being uh, a prophet. I think that's Acts. It might be a typo there. I'll have to double check that. I don't believe it's Acts 1. But then you have 1 Peter 1.11, the prophets speaking, or God speaking through the prophets, the Spirit of Christ speaking in Acts 28. Um, uh, Hebrews 1 is probably one of the clearest, not, not that any of these are unclear, but just like the most kind of pointed, if you will. In Hebrews chapter 1, the scripture tells us these words. I'll get there in just a second. Um, Hebrews 1, God who at various times and in various ways spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets. The prophets were simply uh, channels of revelation. God did the speaking to the fathers through the prophets. And so it's clear uh, that the, the scriptures are the product of the work of God. Zechariah believed this. Luke chapter 1 verse 70 talks about the promises of God. Um, we see the same in Acts chapter 3. Let me just read that Luke passage. Luke 1 and verse number 70, the Bible says, speaking of God, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets. That's pretty clear, isn't it? This is not a book of man. This is a book that used men to record it. God is often pleased to use normal means in a way to, to, to convey his work to humanity, isn't he? He used men to write the word. Who does he use to share the gospel today? You. Not, you know, he doesn't send angels down from heaven, although he could, but he doesn't. He uses us to do his work. Um, And then uh, Acts chapter 3 and 18, as I just finished justifying this point about God's word being God's word and not man's. uh, Acts 3.18, P. 
Peter's preaching in Solomon's porch, and he says, but those things which God foretold by the mouth of all his prophets that Christ would suffer, he has thus fulfilled. So God used men to convey his word. So don't let anybody tell you that, well, the Bible is and only claims to be a book of men. It's not. It's a book from God. It's the book from God. Secondly, another contradiction in Islamic theology is this. They say that Jesus does not share deity with God. He does not share deity with God. In Christianity, we can just flat out say Jesus is God. Jesus is God. He's worthy of our worship. This is a a highly um, objectionable point to them because they believe that the worst thing you can do is say that there is another alongside of God, that you take honor away from God by saying what I just said. But the scriptures tell us that if you don't honor the Son as you honor the Father, you don't honor the Father who sent him at all. An Islamic argument goes like this. Jesus never said, I am God. Did he? Well, you're jumping ahead of me just one step, but you're good. You're good. Use your favorite Bible software to search for the phrase, I am God. Those three words in order, and they are correct. You will never find them on the lips of Jesus. You only find them about nine times in the entirety of the Bible, okay? But this is a clever trick to throw you off into looking for a Bible verse that says that very statement in order to disprove their objection. There is no verse that says, I am God, that Jesus says, I am God. There are very few in which God says, I am God. He doesn't feel the need to go around justifying who he is because he is who he is. Um, but such a statement is not the only possible proof of the deity of Christ, now is it? For, for them to use this, uh, this is a very fallacious kind of argument, um, a particular set of words not required to express a truth, and this is the f- kind of failure of word, study, word studies, I'll say. If you just are looking for one particular word in the Bible, you can find it, but you can find the same idea communicated by that word in other words, using other words. You with me? So, for example, I could say, I went to the store today. Then you object. But you never said you went to Kroger's. True, I never said that I went to Kroger's, but I said I went to the store. And the security cameras at Kroger's will verify that I was at that particular store. By the way, I use the security camera example because it's an external witness. And there are tons of external witnesses to the person and work of Jesus Christ. Okay, Not just him in, in, in himself. I'll come to that in a moment. Uh, these will testify that I was at Kroger's in the illustration. So a truth can be expressed in multiple different phrases or words and from different observers. Without a first-person statement, I am God, it's required to communicate that Truth. In fact, Jesus did say things that are in substance the same as saying, I am God. One of the most stark is in John 8, 58, before Abraham was, I am. This reflects Exodus 3, 14. I mean, this is, this is like... 
This is more in your face than I am God. This is Jesus quoting Exodus 3.14, God speaking to Moses when Moses asked, who do, who do I say sent me? And God said, I am sent you. And Jesus is saying the very same thing, I am. All of the other I am statements build on this one. In that same verse, he, he said, before Abraham was, speaking of his preexistence. That's a long time ago. That's a long time before Jesus was born that he says, before Abraham was, I, I am. Speaking of that preexistence, uh, there's another one in uh, John 18, verse number 5. I found this after I printed the initial version of these notes. And here is Jesus being arrested in Gethsemane, and the people come up and say, whom do you, or Jesus says, whom do you seek? And they say, Jesus of Nazareth. And he says, I am. Now, the text of Scripture here says, uh, I am, and then it has the word he in italics. I don't prefer that. The, the word he is not in the Greek text. It is the words ego, a me, which means I. Ego is the I pronoun, and a me is the verb I am. I am. There's no word he there, no pronoun for he. He just simply says to them when they ask Jesus of Nazareth, he says, I am, you know, in effect, in modern English, you may say, well, that's me, but he's using the I am phrase, and when he did that, of course, you know, it just bowled them over, and they couldn't stand before him. I am, he says. He made himself equal to God. How about John chapter 5? John chapter 5. John chapter 5. In verse 17, the text of Scripture says, but Jesus answered them, well, back up. He, he had healed somebody on the Sabbath, and of course this enraged the Pharisees and the scribes. The Jews persecuted Jesus, sought to kill him because he had done these things on the Sabbath. That's verse 16. And then verse 17, it says, but Jesus answered them, my father has been working until now, and I have been working. That word and is a crucial word there. He's, God's working, and I'm working. Well, this might not immediately appear to you to be a problem, but to the Jews it did, and it tells us how they took it and how we should take it as well. Therefore, the Jews sought all the more to kill him because he not only broke the Sabbath, you know, but he's adding this now also that he said God was his father making himself what equal with God. The enemies of Jesus, the prophet, the priest, and the king claimed understood him to claim that he was making himself equal with God. You know, uh, move up to the head of the class. You got it right. He is making himself equal with God. And they were upset at that. So um, let's see. How about uh, John 10.30? I and my Father are one. I and my Father are one. Now, the response to that from the Islamic side as well, Jesus said, in his prayer in John chapter 17, uh, I pray, he's praying to the Father and asking that they all may be one as we are one. See, John 10, John 17, they claim, explain one another so that the oneness obviously can't be the oneness of deity in John 10 because it's the oneness of believers in John 17. 
Well, you can't explain one passage separated by seven chapters to another one just like that, just because it happens to use the same word. The context has to be taken into consideration. The oneness of John 17 is obviously lesser than the oneness of John chapter 10. You know, a faithful reading of the text would, would, uh, would make, re- require us to read it that way. So the oneness is different. Obviously, the oneness is oneness of, of divine essence, of nature, of work, a person, uh, not a person per se, but of, of nature. And so that's what the Lord is talking about in John chapter 10, verse 30. But you can respond to that kind of, what I'm trying to say is you can respond to the, well, one means the same thing here as it does here. Well, no, it doesn't. One means what one means in its context. Um, when you've got somebody in John 10 saying, you know, all that the one who is in my hand cannot be snatched out of my hand, and the one that's in the Father's hand cannot be snatched out of his hand, and I and the Father are one, that obviously means something different than, I pray that all the believers would be one in terms of unity in, in the upcoming life of the church. Uh, let's see, what else can we, how else can we respond to this idea of the, this, this contradiction where they say that Jesus is not deity. Well, his followers and the text that was breathed out by God in the New Testament makes it clear that Jesus is deity and worthy of all worship. Uh, Where could you find such texts? And now I'm asking you to really think, where would you find any text in the New Testament at all that would teach the deity of Christ, besides these ones where Jesus is speaking already for himself that we've looked at? Where else would you go in the scriptures? saying that he's worthy of worship, that he shares the, uh, the uh, attributes of God or whatever. There's probably tons of them. Yes, sir. John 1.1 1, 1 is like probably the most powerful one that you can come up with. In, in the beginning was, you know it, the Word. The Word was with God and the Word was God. Yeah, the same was in the beginning with God. And in John 1.14, it says, and the word became flesh, just to make sure that we know who the word is that we're talking about. It's the word that became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. So we have the word who became flesh, Christ, obviously Jesus, who is God. That's a fascinating passage of scripture. One of the strongest, if not the strongest. You have other ones, though. Hebrews 1.6, let all the angels of God worship him. Of, who else, of whom else is that said anywhere, that all the angels should bow down and worship him? Or how about Philippians chapter 2, which says that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess what? That Jesus is, let's let Lord have its full impact on our hearts, friends. This doesn't mean sir, it means God. Romans 10, 9 and 10, if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. Romans 9, 5 talks about the uh, eternally, uh, about Christ who came in the flesh, the eternally blessed God, it says, speaking of him. Psalm two twelve: do homage to the Son, lest he become angry with you in the way and you perish. Revelation 5, the lamb comes before the throne, kind of in a revisitation of Daniel chapter 7, to receive the scroll written within and on the backside sealed with seven seals. 
wherein no one had been able to open that scroll or been found worthy to do that. And he comes and he grabs that scroll and, and it says that the, in the text of Scripture there in Revelation chapter 5 that myriads and myriads fell down and worshipped him. Angels, tens of thousands and thousands upon thousands and the 24 elders and the four living creatures and everybody in heaven falling down to worship Jesus Christ the Lord. Jesus himself said, I am the first and the last, the living one, Revelation 1, 17 to 18. Titus 2 and 2 Peter 1 use that fancy grammatical structure, Granville Sharp's rule that talk about him as, as uh, equal with God, one with God. And uh, what else can we talk about? Oh yeah, there's uh, another couple texts that talk about Jesus as the very essence of the divine nature. He's the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person. God was pleased that in him all the fullness of deity should dwell in bodily form. Colossians 1 and Hebrews chapter 1. John declares, as we already said, that the word became flesh and dwelt among us, he the word being God himself. And so this is a mind-boggling idea to someone who believes in a strict monotheistic position. Uh, A Jewish person, uh, a Mormon Well, actually, they don't believe in strict monotheism. They believe the God of our universe is a monotheistic God, but they don't believe that there is only one God. They believe in polytheism. Um, And so, you know, the the doctrine of the Trinity is super important to us, that God is one God in three persons. That's not accepted by those who believe in Islam. Well, here's another one, and uh, I'm going to have to carry this on tonight, I think, friends. I'm going to run out of time here. Another objection is in Islam, Jesus was just a man. It's kind of the other side of what we just talked about. In Christianity, Jesus was a man and God also. And supposedly on the, uh, on the side of Islam are the proofs marshaled in the text by uh, uh, statements like Jesus slept, he was hungry, he, he was tired, he died, he was finite, mortal, weak. These are all characteristics of of a, a being who is not God, because God is the opposite. He's infinite, omnipotent, immortal. Uh, furthermore, in their mind, God and man are so different that they could not overlap in any sense whatsoever. The, the uh, wonderful thing about the Christian teaching is that God is able to touch mankind, in fact, by becoming a man. By It's a little bit oversimplified to say that. God did not transmute into a man. Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity, added human nature and flesh to his existence. He did not, he did not unbecome God. Does that make sense? He did not turn off deity or disrobe of that somehow and then add or become human in some kind of science fiction kind of way. He added to himself uh, the human nature and flesh. Uh, yes, the Bible says God is not a man. That's true. Uh, by, when the Bible says that, by the way, Numbers 23, 19, um, Jesus had not yet taken flesh upon himself back then. But also God is not a man in the sense that he doesn't have the characteristics of man which are sinful, right? That he should lie uh, you know, kind of change his mind due to some 
uh, unforeseen event or inability on his part or something like that. That's not at all what we're talking about when we say when we say God is, that's what we're talking about, rather, when we say God is not a man. We're not talking about that God cannot take on human flesh and dwell among us. That is a miracle, by the way. That is a miracle. Um, I'll, give you, uh, I'll give you one more here. In Islam, the Bible we have today, they say, is not God's word. It's been corrupted. In Christianity, the Bible we have today, is indeed God's word. Now, one of the issues that I have with the statement on the Islamic side is that it's stated over and over again that the Bible is corrupted, but no proof is ever offered for that. Proof is never offered. Um, what happens with the statement is that doubt is cast upon the history of biblical manuscript transmission, and since 95-plus percent of Christians know nothing about the biblical history of transmission, they can't answer this objection. And so... Uh, you remember probably, well, it's been a long while ago now, maybe a couple of years ago, I went over, I remember doing it from my home on YouTube, uh, going over Kruger's statements about the canon of Scripture. We looked at various key ideas about that. Um, and I know you probably don't have that all right on the top of your head. Um, but those kinds of things become important in this kind of discussion. But just simply ask this, where is your evidence for that claim that the Bible has been corrupted? We have gobs of manuscript history, all the way back to within a lifetime or two lifetimes of the apostles themselves. And so we have no reason to question the accuracy of the transmission of the original text down to us to this day. So what happens is they cast doubt on the history of the transmission of the Bible manuscripts, and this satisfies the mind of the Muslims so that they can dismiss everything the Bible says that they do not find agreeable. But if it's true that it has been changed many times throughout history, then the folks making that charge need to bring the evidence of that. We have manuscripts going so far back and tremendous accuracy and transmission of the text, and so we can have a full confidence, full confidence in the Bible that we have, okay? Now that, you know, you can take the apologetic value of that and use it in this context, or you can take the value of that in your own life and say the promises upon which I have relied are the very promises that were written by the pen of men who were moved by the Spirit of God. So you can rely upon the promises of God personally, even if you're not witnessing to anybody. Through whatever trial you're facing, it is the word of the living God that we're talking about here. The next one that we'll go over, which we don't have time to right now, is this. I'll just let this kind of sink into your mind. In Islam, they say this, it was unnecessary that Jesus Christ die. Okay, let that sink in as opposed to the Christian teaching that it was absolutely necessary that Christ die and rise again. See, once again, we get back to the person and work of Christ. You always go there when you're speaking with others. Always go there. Who do you think Christ is, man or God? What do you think he did? Well, he didn't have to die on their side, or what the Scripture teaches, he had to. And this is not just like, you know, I'm starting to teach it now. I'm not supposed to do this. I'm supposed to wait until the next time. But you, 
it's not like this is like in one text of Scripture where, you know, oh, the Christians in later years or the Apostle Paul corrupted it. This is from Genesis 3.15 all the way up to Revelation, the whole Bible, over and over and over again. We'll go there later. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the clear way in which you have taught us that you revealed your word to mankind through the pens of men by the Holy Spirit of God. And you have clearly shown us that your son, although never saying the bold words, I am God, said even more bold words, I am. We know who he is. And Father, we are called by his title, Christian, reflecting on the the idea of the Messiah, the anointed one. We are ones who belong to him. We follow you and him and the Spirit of God. And Lord, we pray that, Father, you would help us in his name to extol his name and to bring it to the nations, to those who do not know him. For without knowing him, there is no way into heaven. Thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.